Okay, so I'm going to give like a little menu of some of the novel paradigm shifting ideas that I associate with you. And some of these will be familiar to the listeners because I think they've become common terms in certain spaces. But uh, neural annealing, autism as a disorder of dimensionality, the neuroscience of meditation, and also qualia formalism and the symmetry theory of valence. And I'd like to start with that last one because that's what's been blowing my mind in the last two weeks. So like, what would be the one sentence summary of, of that thesis about qualia formalism? Qualia formalism is this idea that um, math is the right approach to understanding consciousness and that you can have an exact representation of an experience. And like, yeah, once again, this is a, this is a big deal. If true, it would mm -hmm. be a big deal if false. And then the symmetry theory of valence sort of takes this idea and then says, okay, so where do we even start to reverse engineer experience? Um, what is the, the simplest quality? Uh, and, um, and I chose pain and pleasure hmm. uh, to try to reverse engineer. And the symmetry theory of valence, uh, the, the hypothesis is sort of in the name. Uh, by design, and it's that given a mathematical object that represents an experience, for example, what it feels like to be you, what it feels like to be me, what it, <clears throat> excuse me, what what it feels like to be some dog or or some bird, then if we uh, if we evaluate this mathematical object for symmetry, uh, that's how pleasant the experience is, and um, so we can get into what what symmetry is or whatever. But um, I think that like one, one way I like to describe this is um, this is a, a formal mathematical way to say pleasure is good. Good valence is harmony in the mind. Mm. And so if I'm feeling happy, then that's going to be associated with more harmony in the mind or symmetry in in what in like neuroscientific readouts in some sort of mathematical s s uh, set of objects that we haven't fully articulated in all of the above where, where is the symmetry right <clears throat> so um the symmetry theory balance suggests that the the symmetry that matters is the symmetry of this mathematical representation of of what it feels like to be of your experience um, and then the question is, well, can we, can we proxy that with various neuroimaging techniques? Can we uh, measure this with the EEG? Can we measure this with fMRI and so on? And so uh, I've sort of dug into that uh, as, as time goes on. And um, I, I know this because I, I saw some presentations and, and read the paper, but it does seem like those proxies all correspond. So there's like the proxy for your physiology. So things like heart rate variability and your breathing patterns, and then they kind of get into like a harmonious structure and that's associated with positive valence. But then there's also um, harmony with uh, like neuroimaging or EEGs. Can you maybe give us some more examples of that? Sure. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, there, there are many ways to, to measure what's happening in the body and like the, the ways that we would be most interested in are sort of the, the most closely linked to the mind. Um, so like heart rate variability would be cool to, to measure. Um, but like, uh, EEG or, or fMRI might be a better better proxy for what's going on in, in fundamentology. Um, so then, um, like one, one way to, to frame, uh, symmetry is symmetry is order. Uh, symmetry mm -hmm. is sort of lack of noise, lack of complexity. Um, Frank Wolchek, uh, defines symmetry as change without change. And so the, the more ways that you can sort of, shift an object and get the same result, the more symmetries it has. And this is, this can be framed in a very formal way. 
Um, so, <laughs> production issues here. His air pockets fell out. Yep. Nice, and we're back. Um, so, one, it's it's this big question, this grand question of um, how do we connect what's happening in our neuroimaging uh, that you know we can we can apply EEG can apply fMRI, we can apply MEG, um, many, many, we have many, many different tools, but how in the world do we connect that to experience? Hmm. Um, and this is, this is a pretty central question, uh, for neuroscience. And, uh, and my answer, uh, is it might actually not be that hard. Uh, there might actually be some, some sort of clever things we can do. Um, uh, for example, um, if, if we're trying to approximate the, the harmony in the mind or the, the symmetry of this mathematical representation that right now we can't measure uh, directly, um, but if we want to say, okay, what neuroimaging techniques could give us an estimation of how much symmetry there is in, mm-hmm. in a mind, then one thing that I'm looking at is compressibility that you can you can apply this to any sort of neuroimaging data um to eeg to fmri or or whatnot and um it's just uh more pleasant states should be more compressible in kind Mm -hmm. of a a very basic information theoretic sense and and can you define that What, what would you mean by compressibility uh, yeah, so if we have a file size that's uh, a gigabyte, uh, how low can we get it um, if we apply compression? So if, if we can compress it 20% uh, versus if we can compress it 40%, maybe the 40% is a is a more pleasant state. We can infer that it has more symmetry. Okay. Um, my mind's going in all sorts of places now, but I guess I want to tie this in with... Um, an experience I had recently with meditation where I realized that a big part of meditation for me was about unpacking abstractions in my field of experience. So something that um, previously felt like pain when I like really look closely to it, it's actually something a lot more nuanced and complex. And it's like I had a compression on that side of the map that said, this is pain, avoid it. But really it was like, textured with all sorts of other stuff and I I like unpack it and then the pain turns into something else and so this made me have almost like um like a like self-consciousness or um an unstable relationship with like compression algorithms you know where so much of life is about creating like adequate compression algorithms to um offload a lot of like cognitive processes so you can navigate things a little, with more like uh, skill um, and then I was like, well, maybe, maybe that's the problem, you know, maybe that's creating all sorts of unnecessary suffering. And so I need to unpack those compressions or maybe I need to, I did them the wrong way or something like that. So, um, it feels like that's related to what you're saying. I'm just curious to hear you riff on that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I, that definitely matches my experience. Um, I think that like, I, I tend to like the digestive metaphor for the brain. Mm-hmm. That we can talk about unpacking an experience or, or like a, a feeling. Um, we can also talk about sort of unfolding it and then metabolizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, we're sort of made to digest these things. And uh, when they just kind of sit, um, when when a bunch of complexity sits there, um, we can't really digest it until we, we can look at it. Right. And so just to draw a thread with a few things, um, symmetry is like change without change, which I can get how that relates to compression because it, you know, you compress a one gigabyte file to like half its size, you've changed it. It's taking up less space, but for it to be a successful compression, something essential about it is still true. You know, like the image still looks good. It looks like the image. Um, and then this metaphor of, digestion it's like breaking something down to its constituent parts and then re reorganizing them in like a more harmonious or 
more useful or more something more beautiful structure am i getting that right yeah yeah i would i would say so and i mean i would say that that's kind of the um and uh my friend johan john and and some others have a, a good paper on on this metaphor of sort of cognition as digestion uh and it's the sense that um like as as a system we try to stay clean and simple and so if there's food we eat the food we digest it we extract the nutrients we get rid of the waste um and leaving room for the next thing that we that we eat and i think that often sensations feelings uh thoughts are the same way that we have some sort of nugget of complexity and we need to sort of uh internalize it digest it extract the good stuff and then uh jettison the the stuff that we don't need um and the if we do it right then the the outcome the result uh is simplicity it's harmony mm -hmm. it's it's symmetry right can you uh give like a very basic example of you know like two people having an interaction and then some sort of complexity arises what would it look like if you went through the whole you know digestive tract for that complexity sure sure <clears throat> um so if i if i like if we're having a conversation and um and we talk about uh i don't know like the molecular structure of water or something and like uh we talk about chemical bond and you're like what exactly is a chemical bond and like there's a there are some words that okay i said chemical bond and now they're they're sort of they're in your head uh you're wondering okay what what exactly is this thing and you're kind of looking at it from different angles um and maybe it's hard to digest um hard to sort of metabolize hard to sort of uh get the nutrients out and and move on to the next thing um and so that that complexity is is sort of sitting in your mind um and breaking symmetries we can say mm. um and then you know as we say okay well there are like these valence shells and uh the electrons fit in them in, in, in such a way uh then it gives uh, you sort of the the reagents or the the frame to digest this concept, and you're like, oh yeah, like that makes total sense. And we can we can move. Um, it's funny because this actually it's very self-referencing, but this matches my experience with encountering your work and also you know QRI stuff. Where I think in part because it's so ambitious. In the beginning, it felt like I was discovering these like isolated, self-contained you know theories. Right that I couldn't really incorporate or connect with other aspects of my, you know, experience until I, you know, read a bunch and then I was able to like hold all of it in the context window or something and then find a way to, to put it together. Um, and I think what helped me and it might help the listeners is that, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong this is just my understanding, but there's this, uh, words like symmetry and harmony. Um, they bring, uh, all the metaphors of music to mind for me and um, just in music and math also have a really beautiful relationship, you know, music theory. And even if you get down to the physics, like why are certain intervals like pleasant sounding and why are some of them not? And it almost seems like the thread that connects a lot of your work is, is, is something like the, the music of consciousness and I know that's like very yep. vague, but um, that helped as like an anchor for me to make sense of some of the stuff you were saying. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that like oftentimes progress is sort of connecting different domains. Uh, and, you know, if we can connect, uh, you know, the domain of, of consciousness, of phenomenology, of, you know, this blooming, buzzing confusion uh, in James's terms, uh, with with math and especially with music, which is in in some sense normative mathematics, I want to say, mm. uh, then then uh, that gives us a lot more tools to to approach things. Right. So coming back to the symmetry theory of valence, is it uh, am I right in saying that the thesis or like or an implication of it is that 
um, like all things being equal, symmetry, like as a as in the broadest terms, is just good. Like everything we like as human beings is fundamentally associated with symmetry. Um, directly or indirectly. Uh, so I think that uh, like I, I would. Um, you know, put forth the the pretty strong assertion that all positive balance, all good feeling, um, comes from symmetry in the mind, mm. and this is not necessarily the same as symmetry in a stimulus. So, you know, we we don't you know <clears throat> uh, hear one one major chord and then just pass out from pleasure. Um, you know, and and some of us like uh, you know noise music or you know rock music or or whatever that uh that does have some distance but i guess like i tend to describe this in terms of a lock and key system hmm. that uh the brain is is this very complicated lock um and then we we're always looking around for keys uh that will sort of combine with this lock to create harmony and so if, if I'm thirsty, then uh, a drink of water will combine with the, the state of my brain uh, to create more harmony. Um, if I'm not thirsty, then I probably won't. Um, but the, like the symmetry theory of balance uh, argues that the, the goal condition is always the same. It's always symmetry uh, in the brain, symmetry in the mind. Um, and technically symmetry in this mathematical representation of experience. Um, and then of course, naturally, uh, you know, we don't stay happy. We, we, um, we get bored of what we're doing. We're looking for something new and the lock shifts and it takes a different sort of key to, to fit. Right. I'm, I'm reminded here of actually the stuff Jordan Peterson, old school Jordan Peterson would say about, chaos and order and like cleaning your room and um, that it's almost like everyone's in a game that's like perfectly matched for their particular subjectivity of finding like that boundary between chaos and order. And then when you, when you do that, when you have one foot in chaos and one foot in order, your, your meaning instincts and all this other stuff just kind of uh, support you and you feel good. You get into flow. Um, does that connect with the symmetry theory of valence at all? Have you thought of that framing? I, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of the chaos and order frame of uh, Peterson as well. And I think that, um, like we, we sort of, it's about the, the nature of keys that we seek out and like how challenging, like how challenging we, we seek out, uh, like, we don't want something too challenging and we don't want something too easy. Um, so I do think that like the, the part where I would sort of, uh, depart from this chaos versus order frame is that the sort of the success state in the brain and in the mind is always the same. Hmm. And like, this, this gets into uh, sort of effective neuroscience and studied this in terms of um, uh, brain regions and um, and whatnot. But the the findings they have is like, regardless of whether you get there by eating a candy bar or listening to this beautiful, profound symphony, uh, the same regions light up. Um, and I think in, in an even more general sense, like it's all symmetry. It's all, it's all harmony. What, what do you mean by that? By it's all symmetry, it's all harmony. Oh yeah. Um, anything that feels good is creating symmetry in the mind. Um, anything that feels bad is creating, uh, broken symmetries in, in the mind. And is that, um, is that like just certain, brain regions are are pulsing in some sort of like periodic symmetrical manner like 
what does that what does that look like? And I know these are proxies, but right. maybe yeah, what what does that actually look like in a neuroscientific sense? Yeah, that's that's a, a really great question. Um, and I, just kind of to to give a little background, um, neuroscience has approached this this question of what makes some things feel better than others in several ways. And um, one way that uh, it's it's sort of put forward is that maybe there are pleasure neurochemicals. There's mm -hmm. dopamine and there's opioids. And uh, like these things create pleasure in some way. And so part of my argument is that this, this isn't grounded. This like is a good explanation on one level, but not all levels. Um, and uh, another uh, theory that neurosciences has put forth is that pleasure is um, is very localized to certain brain regions. That it's um, you know the the nucleus accumbens is kind of the the pleasure center of the brain, and mm -hmm. there are like you know several others, but and that they sort of intrinsically create pleasure and um again like my my claim is that these sorts of explanations that neuroscience has put forth that you know pleasure is this or you know these things create pleasure um they kind of fall apart when you when you poke at them um and uh, like i i guess i would say a slightly different story um in principia qualia um i where i introduced the symmetry, symmetry theory of balance um, I suggest that we can think of brain regions or like pleasure centers of the brain as tuning knobs of the brain. So these, these uh, you know, quote unquote pleasure centers, they're not intrinsically creating pleasure. They're retuning the brain towards harmony. Mm. And a similar argument with um, sort of opioids, they're, they're sort of adjusting the, the neuroacoustics of the brain, you could say. So what would that, how would that map onto like uh, maybe stimuli or like um, someone's first person experience? Sure. <clears throat> so if, if you, uh, if you eat something that you, you really like, um, then maybe uh, there's some, some activation of nucleus accumbens as a, as a pleasure center. And maybe it sort of pulses out harmony it sort of synchronizes other regions to it and uh and like there's sort of the then the reflections and there's constructive interference and and sort of your brain starts to hum when you eat something nice uh, or we can say your nervous system starts to hum um and so it may look like the the pleasure center is is causing that but it's actually the whole brain that's mm. that's involved okay now what if i eat something that tastes really good but there's this other part of me that knows it's not in line with my fitness goals sure uh so then you're going to have some some cognitive dissonance and little literal dissonance um that there there may be sort of two i would call them frequency regimes uh that are sort of fighting and one um like they're each maybe harmonious harmonious uh, to themselves, but together they produce dissonance. Mm -hmm. So they're like, there's localized pockets of harmony, but they're like totally different to genres of music or something, or they're in different keys. And then so when they encounter each other, there's d disharmony at like a higher level. Totally. So this, this is kind of exciting to me because, um, I've had like a personal, philosophy like a minimum viable philosophy that just works has, works really well for me which is um like i playfully call it integrity maxing which is just you know start with the values that i believe i have and then try to structure my life my day my actions my practices so that i'm in integrity with those values and that requires like having some self-awareness about what those values are and then having the appropriate amount of self-discipline and also compassion to like understand how to do things and skill to have integrity with, with those values. And my life is just better when I am in integrity. And then my life just feels worse when I'm not. And I try to 
almost like uh, make this as legible to myself as possible by like articulating, you know, what it is that I value. Um, and it just, just taking the, the thing you just presented, it makes me think that it's, um, that's just a practice of resolving cognitive dissonance across time, right? Because the, that subjective feeling of integrity is when I guess different regions of my brain, like find a way to strike a deal with each other or something and then harmonize. Am I, am I getting it? Is that, totally. does that make sense? Yeah. Totally. And, uh, I mean, I think in a, in sort of the deep philosophical, psychological way, I think we can construct ourselves in many different ways. And some lead to, uh, internal conflict, internal dissonance, et cetera, uh, much more so than others. Mm-hmm. And maybe a very simple model is like, um, you know, you have your values and then you have your, your behavior. And so to the degree that your behavior corresponds with your values, you are in integrity, but then your values might not actually correspond to reality. Like you might have the wrong values and then you're going to get feedback from reality that, you know, you're, you're doing things wrong or something's off. And so there's that kind of, there's different places where you can have dissonance, I guess. Yep. Yep. Totally. One, one interesting angle on this, um, I mean, I always, I'm, I'm a big fan of this idea that the emotions are embodied and that mm-hmm. there's, there's so much intelligence, not only in the brain, but, but also in the body. And, uh, and there's different, different frames about, um, parts work and like internal family systems and, and whatnot and coherence therapy. And I think that, uh, like oftentimes literally different parts of your nervous system can be in conflict. And, um, <clears throat> and like, that conflict sort of leads to you know, literal dissonance in your nervous system and, and literal broken symmetries in, in your experience. Uh, and it's sort of a tug of war and like different, different organs fight differently and they have different carrots and sticks. And so, I don't know, we you know a lot of people on Twitter talk, uh, talk about AI alignment. Um, and I think that's, that's a fascinating topic. And I think that, like somatic alignment is also just super interesting. What are some um, interesting implications of the symmetry theory of valence when it comes to therapeutic practices for somatic alignment or even just, you know, personal practices in order to achieve more symmetry? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that um, there's this idea that's, um, there can be competing, and I'm, I'm going to use this term again, um, uh, harmonic regimes, um, and that can like they sort of have coherence and harmony when taken solo, but then when combined, they can create dissonance. And I think that a lot of like a lot of improving that, and like this, this is kind of the human condition. To be, you know, this sort of uh, somatic parliament that it doesn't always fully get along, um, and then I think that uh, <clears throat> like there's there's like stuff that I can say about sort of symmetry and, and harmony and mathematics, and there's also this stuff that I can say about just like when you have several periodic systems that each have harmonic structure like how do you make them play well together um how do you sort of harmonize that harmonic structure and like i um in my expectation and in my experience um it's it's about listening it's it's about like uh getting the getting the integration getting the information to flow um and then like over time these systems will will figure it they'll figure it out um, it might be a, a somewhat painful process uh, during, you know, during that time. But um, yeah, I think like in terms of like having harmony in your body, uh, you just got to make sure it's, it's talking, listening. And practically, is that just 
you know, having equanimity and bringing attention to all these different parts? Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, this, this could kind of gets into somatic practices and, and whatnot. And I think like the most important thing is just to set aside time to give yourself attention, to, to give different parts of your attention. And like the, the parts that need the most attention feel the worst to give attention mm-hmm. uh, because it's like, oh, you know, I have a pain pain in my stomach and I don't want to put my attention there because it hurts. But like it'll only hurt when you resist giving an attention. And then once you kind of apply attention, you let, again, touching back on, on your previous example, um, you kind of let the that part of you expand and unfold <laughs> and then um uh you can sort of metabolize whatever's there and it, does that just look like sitting uh yeah i mean it can be can be in meditation uh but i get the feeling that a lot of people um are sometimes a little um they find meditation a little intimidating mm-hmm. um like this practice can just literally be just lie down in bed, shut your eyes and like give yourself attention. And it seems like there's a, there's a general direction, I guess for most people depends on your starting point, but for that attention to be in the body and not in, in terms of, you know, your thoughts about the body. And so, um, right you know, I guess that's the whole thing with somatic work. It's about feeling what wants to be felt and not, you know, telling a story about it or describing it and then paying attention to the description, but actually paying attention to the raw sensory experience of it. Right. Yeah. Um, so my, my Boston teacher, uh, suggests this, uh, this, uh, I don't know if, if I want to call it a mantra or just kind of framework, um, present, internal centered that so much uh so much of our experience we're thinking about the future we're thinking about the past and um to to sort of be be present we have to be in the present uh and then internal like we can we can kind of put our attention outside and you know thinking about other things uh but we should be putting our attention like if if we're trying to sort of give ourselves attention, uh, we should put it inside. And then centered, um, he means it in terms of not trying to chase after or judge anything. Um, <clears throat> it's just taking things neutrally as they, as they are. Right. And that, that's, um, gives you the space to actually listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what comes to mind here is, you know, as, by hydrating all these uh, harmonic regimes with attention and listening to them, we can create the opportunity for them to reorganize with like more harmony. Um, And I think that's true internally, but it's also true externally with people. Like there's a way in which you can show up with someone that you have dissonance with that creates the opportunity for harmony across, you know, that relationship um, do you think about the way human beings coordinate in the same terms or are there notable differences in the way this shows up externally as opposed to internally? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's, it's all the same stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and there's this, uh, one of my favorite, favorite sayings is, um, <clears throat> as you do anything, so you do everything. Yeah. And I mean, this, it's clear that, uh, like, we have the same kind of interactions with others as we do like inside our body. And like, uh, we're sort of fractal harmonic computers and, uh, like a lot of, a lot of effective practice is sort of learning how to, um, how to be a good harmonic computer, I guess I would say. Mm. Um, okay. This reminds me of a quote of yours that I really liked. I'm just going to read it. Uh, he said, people think emotional progress is about releasing tension, but in my opinion, it's first about building enough virtue in your nervous system such that your 
vasomuscular system doesn't need to jump in and micromanage. And then showing your body evidence of this virtue. And then you get release. Can you, can you explain that? Nice. Uh, yeah, would be, would be happy to. Um, so this gets into my, my latest piece. Um, it's called Principles of Vasocomputation. And um, it, uh, it talks about, it sort of, it combines three domains. One domain is Buddhist phenomenology. Um, another domain, it's called um, active inference. It's part of the predictive coding free energy principle uh, cluster. And then the third domain is neuroanatomy. Um, and so uh, the, the rabbit hole goes pretty deep. Uh, I'd recommend people, uh, people read my thing. Uh, it's, it's the top post right now on opentheory.net. Um, uh, but I would say that uh, like the, the important thing uh, for explaining this quote is that you know, we, we think of um, computation as happening in the nervous system. That, okay, you have the brain, you have some nerves, and they send electrical pulses around, and the magic happens. <laughs> and um, principles of vessel computation says yes and. Uh, like that, that is absolutely true. But there's also a parallel system that is very computationally relevant. Um, and, uh, and that's actually the vasomuscular system. So the, the vasomuscular system is, um, it has a ring of muscle around it. All our, our veins and arteries and, and whatnot, um, it has a, a ring of smooth muscle. They're called, uh, VSMCs, vascular smooth muscle cells. And so they can, they can contract our, our blood vessels. And, um, and I like, uh, I think that the the contractions of this system are actually really important to understand, like how humans work, uh, how humans think, how humans feel, um, how humans move. Um, so, um, the the vessel muscular system is a helper system um, when the neural system is is you know doing good things, it just hangs out. Um, but when the neural system gets into trouble, when you know, there's, there's a lot of dissonance or ambivalence or um, uncertainty, especially, uh, the vasomuscular system contracts and it tries to, tries to help things out. It tries to like, um, kind of shake the pinball machine, tilt the pinball machine. Mm. <clears throat> um, and also if it, um, if it identifies some neural uh, patterns as unsafe, it, it sort of blocks those out. So if, if we have tension in the body, uh, it's because uh, our body thinks that some parts of our full dynamic range are unsafe. And this tension is trying to help us. And um, I, I think of it like... Um, like, I don't know if you know what a, a Kaladni plate is. It's like a, a vibrating metal plate. And you can sprinkle sand on it and it can make cool geometric patterns. Um, mm. Like, that's kind of what our, our nervous system is in terms of it has harmonics or like eigenmodes and, and, and whatnot. But then, like, having tension in the body is sort of like putting a clamp on the body. Um, putting a clamp on the resonances, you block off certain patterns. You just say, okay, <clears throat> um, we're not going to resonate in that way because it got us into trouble. Mm. And to, to some degree, like this is, uh, I think a pretty clean generative definition of trauma. It's uh, this sort of clamp put on the nervous system that prevents certain classes of resonance it prevents certain areas of our dynamic range from being used um and so uh and i once again i i think that this is a this is a muscular thing it's it's the 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 vasomuscular uh tissue is it's 
just kind of clenched. Um, so if, if you know, somatic people talk about blocks, uh, this is what I think a block is. And, uh, and these clenches can last for a long time. They can, uh, they can undergo what, or like they can engage what's called the latch bridge mechanism, which it basically glues, uh, glues muscle shut. Mm. Like it glues it into a contracted state. And it can stay that way for seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. Um, it can be that way for the rest of your life if, if you're unlucky. So, um, so the question is, <clears throat> um, how do you like, how do you get rid of tension? And there are so many different ways. Uh, you know, there's you know nutrition and like you know meganosine magnesium is a, right. is a not not a bad idea. Um, and you know you can you can go to sauna and you can go you know uh, do do yoga. You know, just the menu on this is just uh, huge, and there's no wrong answer. Um, but I would also say that uh, like back to the the quote that you. Uh, you brought up our nervous systems are like uh, I take that back our bodies are trying to help us mm -hmm. like it's it's not that your body is trying to be a big jerk and so it's holding this tension um, it actually thinks that there's something unsafe there that part of the range that is blocking off it needs to block off um, otherwise something bad would happen so um, I think like one of the, one of the frames that, uh, I think we should generally put more attention on is like, can we make our nervous systems better, more virtuous, uh, better able to handle things by themselves so that this vasomuscular system doesn't have to get, it doesn't have to clench. It doesn't have to hold tension. That, um, you know, it's like, uh, we, we talk, uh, about how, how great flow state is and it's a great thing. Uh, and that's just when the neural system can do its thing and the best muscular system doesn't even have to get involved, then, mm. then we get flow and it's beautiful, but it's this question of what is the prerequisite there? And it's, it's having a neural system with good defaults. And you build those defaults through good habits. And so I, I almost think that like one, one underappreciated um, thing about, okay, if you want to feel less tension, if you want to feel less stressed, etc., uh, build better habits. And then uh, your system and like you, you might also have to, you know, do, do something to, to unclench that that tissue, um, sometimes <laughs> having trouble with my earbuds here. Uh, sometimes we we hold a clench much longer than we need to. Mm -hmm. But I think step one is uh, make sure that like uh, your your nervous system your your neural system can be trusted to just go into flow and and mm -hmm. like uh perform its its defaults and i i think of that as like um tension sort of holds patterns into place and then over time these patterns grow into being the defaults and kind of like a like a, a wrapped bonsai tree or something and then over time then we don't need the tension like the defaults are, are in a good state. What sort of habits are you talking about when you say build better habits? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so if I always get nervous about something, if, <clears throat> if I'm like nervous about going into the grocery store and, and what, and you know, something like that, uh, then like just breaking down okay like why why am i nervous what bad thing uh do i am i concerned about and like is there a habit that i can put into place that would just 
block of the possibility of that bad thing happening. Um, and then, you know, you apply that habit and then you don't need to feel nervous. Like you might still feel nervous, but it can just kind of fade away. I'm imagining almost like a, like a skill tree, you know, of like a series of, there's probably a set of habits or a set of practices that generalize quite well um, to giving, I guess, like safety to the, to the system. So it's like, okay, the bad thing isn't going to happen anymore. And then that, maybe that's also what you mean by like virtue, building virtue in your nerve system. And yeah, uh, totally. one of the ones that came up is actually stoicism um, or CBT or the ability to disambiguate your interpretations of events um, and then from the events themselves and realizing that, uh, you know, like people can't really hurt you with their words. Um, it's your interpretation of their words and the implications and all the metadata that comes along with the words that lead to the feelings of hurt and having the skill of disambiguating that would probably give you a lot more resilience and safety when it comes to potential conflict or tense situations with people. Um, so having good habits around that, which, you know, is CBT stoicism and, uh, similar practices would give you safety in these situations. Is that kind of what you're talking about when you say building virtue in the nervous system? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, there's also this, uh, sort of getting into stoicism and, and Buddhism and, and whatnot. Um, there's this, uh, this idea that usually the bad thing isn't the thing itself. It's our reaction to the thing. The second um, arrow. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, Buddhism, you know, uh, th there are Buddhists who claim that, you know, it's like 95% of, of suffering is our, our reaction. And, uh, I guess I'd want to sort of to touch back on the vasocomputation angle that I actually think that this is a, um, literally a muscle reflex. Mm. Uh, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of playing around with this, uh, this idea that, uh, and you know, I, I can't fully, fully explain it at this point, but, um, uh, the phrase that comes to mind is enlightenment is muscular. Mm. Uh, and that, uh, to, to some degree, there's sort of two tracks on, on the path and one track is, <clears throat> it's literally muscle deconditioning. It's sort of taking this, this natural reflex and we can call it the, the cringe reflex, um, and, and turning it down, making it sort of less of a default. Uh, soften it, and and I do think that in you know, very experienced meditators, uh, their their cringe reflex is very very soft, and um, and it's something that they have successfully de deconditioned. Um, now, on the other hand, uh, it's about also about sort of building up your nervous system so that you don't need that. That I mean this this sort of reflex that, you know, something happens, whether it's, you know, uh, a sensation or a situation or, or something kind of, you know, we, we react to it in, in this sort of in, instinctual, uh, simple way. But it's also about not needing that reflex. Like that reflex is trying to help us. Mm. And maybe it creates more trouble than uh, it solves many times, but um, if you can absolutely remove the need for that reflex, then it's a lot easier to decondition. So this would be like getting triggered by something somebody says, and then through con contemplative practice and meditation, you can kind of see that happening in slow motion and then realize you don't need to get triggered, and then that gives you the space to uh, better dance with the situation totally, totally as opposed to like clenching up again yeah and it seems like uh at least practically speaking there's the habits the good habits to give yourself a sense of safety so that you you don't you don't need to 
get triggered. But then there's also this like second category of, you know, the somatic work, like doing the sauna and cold plunge, like doing the, the yoga and stuff like that, where it almost seems like you're bringing yourself to these like places where you would otherwise cringe or where there's like a clamp in the, in the network. Um, and then realizing that it's safe and you don't have to do that anymore. And then kind of giving yourself evidence that, okay, we don't, we don't need to do that anymore. Is that how you think about it as well? Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I also think that like, this is something that can be viewed from many, many different angles and, uh, like something like sauna, um, especially or like breath work or, you know, psychedelics. Um, I almost think of like, um, as a garbage collection mechanism. Um, so, uh, we, we go through our day and, uh, you know, basically, so the, um, the principles of vessel computation hypothesis, uh, suggest that we, we hold predictions as tension and we sort of commit to holding this tension until these predictions come true. Mm-hmm. And that this can be done in skillful or, or unskillful ways. Um, but it's also the case that um, sometimes, like, I don't know if people are, are fully familiar with the garbage collection metaphor, but like in, in programming, you know, you can, you can allocate a bunch of memory. You can say, okay, I, I need access to this memory. And then you can use it. And sometimes you don't give it back. Um, it just kind of hangs out and, uh, becomes kind of this this sort of um, overhead that uh, that you you're not using it, but you haven't given it back to the system. So it's mm. just resources that are kind of frozen. And I think that in in day to day experience, this actually happens a lot with tension. That you know we can think of okay, you know I'm I'm going to light the stove and uh, okay I have the burner on and. Um, I'm going to hold, like, I have a tension in, in my body, some tension that uh, sort of uh, represents I have the stove on, and I need to remember this. Um, and then, okay, I turn the stove off, I can release tension, you know, everything is clean again. Um, but a lot of, you know, modern life is just so complicated, and it's so fragmented, and it's so, uh, we don't always have the, the cues that, well, actually, you can release that tension. You don't need to worry anymore. Um, and uh, and so these like little fragments of of uncollected garbage, we can say, um, just kind of pile up. And you know, it's not that uh, it needs to be there. It's just that your body is facing this incredibly hard computational problem of keeping track of everything and. Uh, you know, better to to be a little sticky with tension than to just you know let everything go right. uh, at the first hint that you can. So, and like people vary a lot in this dimension. You know, for some people things are very sticky, and for some people they're not. But um, like this this sort of garbage can build up, and then it can be very useful to have some sort of um <clears throat> some sort of practice that can sort of clean this stuff and like sauna would be a, a great example um you know uh psychedelics may also work for this um and like yeah just any any high energy state and this gets into the dinner on the yeah um just to kind of connect this with some of my own experiences um definitely high energy states, like really intense workouts, really intense sauna sessions, uh, cold plunge. One thing I, I notice, so I do sauna, then cold, and then I sit in like a normal room until I shiver nice. my body temperature back up to something stable and then go back in the sauna. And that shivering period is actually way harder than the cold plunge for me. Yeah. And that's often when a bunch of like emotional stuff comes up to it, like the body's shaking and it kind of feels like some of these <laughs> patterns are being released um and just to kind of i guess bring in the neural annealing bit um my understanding of that theory is that the body's like almost um or the nervous system gets into like a local maximum and uh 
by adding disorder or variance or energy to the system, things can like have the possibility to reorganize at like a higher level of organization. And that's why these uh, practices, like physical practices that are really intense can be associated with a lot of release. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that um, it's sort of, no, I, I like the, the metaphor of, you know, the brain is like a metal. And uh, if it's sort of cold worked a lot. So if you cold work metal, it's like you bend it into place without heating it up. And, uh, and if you do that a lot to some metal, it'll get hard and brittle. You know, if, if you think of like taking a paperclip and you, you bend it, you bend it back, you bend it, you bend it back, pretty soon, like that metal is going to get really, really hard and brittle. And so um, the, the neural annealing uh, model says that, um, yeah, like just like you can, you can heal a metal by sort of heating it up past a certain critical threshold, letting the, the atoms self-organize into a, a new default microstructure uh, and then letting it cool down, you can and should do that to the brain as well. And not literal heat, but uh, just like sometimes emotional. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes, yeah, sauna is, yeah. is great. Um, but like uh, um, we need emotionally intense experiences. Yeah. And uh, if, if we don't get them, then our psychs, psyches get hard and brittle. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. It's like once a quarter, you got to do something really intense. Yeah. Um, one other thing this reminds me of, uh, and we're, we're coming up on the hour mark, so I got a couple questions left for you, but I wanted to share that. Um, so I, I, I do uh, coaching for founders and a lot of stuff that we do is uh, like bread and butter productivity type stuff. And they're inundated with all sorts of responsibilities and like uh, potentially distracting things and they have to really focus on, you know, a couple of really important things and say no. And that, I guess, creates a lot of tension. A lot of like garbage gets collected. A lot of sticky things emerge out of that. And one framework that works really well is uh, GTD, getting things done. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with that, but the first step of that is basically like a major like mind dump where you walk people through listing all the different things in their life that they're avoiding or resisting or responsible for. And it's very, very basic and mundane. Like you just get a sheet of paper and you write things down or you do it in a Google doc, but it, it almost as if it's almost as if it makes a lot of that, uh, those things like, you know, the stove is on or whatever, like the equivalents for, of those, of that category of stuff, very legible. And I, I call it like collecting open loops. And then once you yeah. see them in front of you, you can actually close them or decide that these ones aren't important or figure out like the, the 20% that's responsible for 80% of the outcomes. And I, I bring that in because that's a lot more mundane and straightforward and, you know, day to day than, you know, doing a psychedelic trip or doing sauna and cold plunge. But it seems like it would help with the clenching, cringing patterns that you're describing. Yeah, no, I absolutely. And I think that these open loops take a lot more resources than we realize. And like, if, <clears throat> if, if we're these sort of harmonic computers, uh, and we just have a bunch of clamps, um, on our, on our ability to resonate, um, then that really does reduce our, our capacity quite a bit. And so the, the more, you know, free the body and, and the mind will follow, I guess is the, frame there and and also free the mind and, and the body will follow right uh, i think it's connected yeah so two two more questions the first is and this is kind of a selfish question this is something i was curious about when just for my own life when i was reading your work which is uh basically the something i've been quite interested in just to understand myself um is the problem of salience or like keeping certain things salient across time and why yeah. it seems so difficult uh, for many personalities, including my own. Like I've had to come up with all sorts of practices and systems in order to maintain the salience of things that, that I know are valuable to me. You know, something I'm excited about on Monday, I like totally forget about on Thursday unless I follow some of these practices to, 
basically narrow my focus and, you know, remind myself of things. Um, and the more I've talked about this openly with people and especially with clients, I realize it's actually a big, big problem that a lot of people face. And I think some of it has to do with our overwhelming information environment and digital environment. But I was curious how this fits with uh, your ideas of, of symmetry, because one of the things you alluded to in the beginning is that it's not enough that you just have a singular symmetrical experience. Like if you play like a beautiful, you know, major seventh chord on the piano, it might feel good for the moment, but it's going to get boring and boredom and salience seem to be related. So I wonder if you have any thoughts, uh, how, how you might frame those concepts from, from the lens of your work. Sure. Uh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd first put it in the metaphor that, I mean, if, if the body is a song and the song changes over time, um, keeping something in mind, keeping something prominent and, and salient and constant is like when you have, uh, when you're playing the same note throughout this changing song, like it's hard. Uh, it's, it's hard to write a beautiful song that always has the same note playing. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's, it's somehow understandable that it's, it's hard. Um, and I think that, uh, when like we can look at what happens when this, when we can't do this, when we fail at this task and like one kind of failure is, you know, things just drop out of our salience list and you're like, yeah, it was important yesterday, but it's not important today. But another failure I would say is ADHD. Um, it's sort of trying, you know, the, the ADHD state is trying to hold many different, very disparate things. And you're like, well, I, I have to keep hold of this and it's, it's in, you know, the context of my work and I have to keep hold of this and this is in the context of my relationship. I have to keep hold of this. This is in the context of like taking care of my dog or, or something like that. And um, it's just too much. Mm. And you get paralyzed because, well, you know you have to hang on to these things, but you can't make it into a song. Um, I have so many follow-ups, but I know we're coming up on time. Do you, do you have a, a hard stop in five minutes? No hard stuff. Okay, we'll, we'll, I, I'll just ask a couple more questions then. Um, any any suggestions for how to make music with that kind of stuff? Like, how do you yeah, how do you make that all into a song? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean it's it's the hardest thing, and it's it's mm. kind of the problem of modern modernity. Mm. It's a, it's not an easy problem, but I do think that like really. I mean, we hang on to these things through instinct we, because we fear we might lose something important. In reality, if we let it go, it'll probably come back. Mm. And that uh, if if we're less sticky, it's good on the margin. I mean, it's it's not great to you know just let go of everything and you know you know. Our responsibilities and memories and, you know, uh, it'll all work out. Well, sometimes it doesn't work out. Um, but on the margin, it's probably great advice to, to let, just be more willing to let go. Because if something is important, uh, you don't have to hold it with attention. Like you can rely on your, your neural patterns to, to hold it as well. Um, and like we can really only do one thing at a time. So if you're holding things in many domains, um, it's just, it's just noise. Right. This is why I like, um, learning, you know, systems for processing all the open loops like GTD, um, yep. and having almost being like a martial artist when it comes to navigating all that, you know, life complexity and then focusing on what's immediately before you. And then the other thing this reminds me of, and this is a huge topic, but it does seem like the fact that we don't have shared cosmic narratives, you know, like a shared religious worldview with the same set of values or um, big, big stories to like hold us together in modern life is one of the reasons why this is really hard. 
because basically your paradigms can constantly be refactored and reevaluated and things are going to fall out and like other things are going to come back. And I just imagine it'd be way easier if, you know, everybody was Christian or something, or, you know, we all believed in the same God. Um, so I think that's part of the, the diagnosis. Totally. Um, I, yeah, also, I also think that there's, a, <clears throat> there are really cool social technologies that we've kind of, kind of let fall into disrepair. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for example, like if, if we think about effective garbage collection technologies and like that, like has a negative connotation, but it's actually like, no, this, like, this is really important. It's like cleaning yourself of these, all these shards of context, um, like confession, the church, holy cow, uh, how, how powerful is that as a, as a garbage collection technology? Like you can just kind of close a lot of different sorts of loops every week. Right. Um, okay. Last question. Uh, this is more of a personal one. Uh, when I look at all, all your work and as I said, it, it strikes me as like very intellectually ambitious. And I think part of the reason why it was kind of hard to penetrate from the outside is that generally I, I'm not used to people being that ambitious, like for even the idea of quality of formalism, that there is like a mathematical object that corresponds to every subjective state or uh, state of consciousness. That's like a very bold, ambitious idea. And it seems like you're following through and, and rigorously trying to make sense of it. And I just think that's a, that's very rare. That's that's even rare in like intellectuals. So why do you think you had the intuition or courage to go down that path while it seems like most other people don't. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess the honest appraisal there is, uh, I just get obsessed with curiosity about yeah. things and, and it's like, uh, you do what you need to do to, to get clarity. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm, I'm a big fan as a philosopher about, um, finding binary philosophical questions of like, either we live in a universe where X is true or we live in a universe where X is false. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's easy to, to spend a life in philosophy, just thinking about things and like wondering things and being curious and that can be beautiful, but it can produce nothing. Um, and I always want to sort of try to compile things into into this binary frame of like, well, either this is true, and that's sup- that would be super interesting to know, like that would be very big news, or this is false, and that would also be very, very big news. And whenever I find a question like that, I get really excited. And like, that, this sort of leads into like, uh, quality formalism and valence realism and valence formalism and, and so on. So, it's just, uh, I, I guess I'd credit um, that instinct or, or heuristic for, for a lot of this. Mike Johnson, it was very nice talking to you. Where can people find more about you and what's uh, something you'd like to draw their attention to in particular? My pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, my, my work is on opentheory.net. And I'm especially proud of the last three posts. And yeah, just uh, want to thank you for the invite. I'll put all those articles in the show notes as well. Awesome.